As you remain standing, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me today for the reading of God's Word to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter number 10. The story or the stories that we are about to read here are going to serve as the illustration for the point that the Lord has laid upon my heart today. So we're just going to relate the story to you just to simply set the stage for the message. Uh, As I said a moment ago, this is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day that we remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the 120 that were there in Jerusalem. And it really was the birthday of the church. Happy birthday, everyone. It's This should be a celebration today. This is the birthday of the church. This is when the church came into existence by the power of the Holy Spirit. And and I want to just, I don't like to draw attention to it because I was asked to be the speaker. But if those of you that can, can make it up to Burlington, the Fountain of Life, we would love to have you for that Pentecost rally. I will tell you that I'm going to be sharing this same message And I wanted to be completely up front with you, but as I prayed about Pentecost Sunday, the Lord only laid one message on my heart. So this is it. So I'm preaching it today. I'm going to be preaching it tonight. I pray that many of you will come up and join us. There are going to be many churches there, and uh, we're looking forward to a great evening uh, together. Today, I I just want to share with you the non-negotiables of Pentecost, the things that we will not negotiate with. There are some things that are unique to the Pentecostal faith that we are not going to negotiate. We're not going to do away with them. There are things that were born on the day of Pentecost that we dare not distance ourselves from. We must remain true to them. There are probably many more than what I'm going to give you today, but these are the four that the Lord laid on my heart. But I want to begin today with this story in 1 Kings chapter 10, beginning with verse number 16. It says, And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minus of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. That would be the palace of Solomon. So now we're going to fast forward. Solomon is no longer the king. And I want you to see what happens in 1 Kings chapter 14. You can go over to 1 Kings 14 and verse number 25. It's a very interesting story. 1 Kings chapter 14, beginning with verse number 25. It happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. I don't know why this is affecting me right now. He took away everything. He also took away the gold shields which Solomon, his father, had made. Then King Rehoboam made bronze or brass shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them, then brought them back into the guard room. This morning, for just a few moments, I'd like to share with you a very simple message entitled, Restoring the Gold Shields of Pentecost. Father, would you glorify your name in what we share over these next few moments. May there not be compromise found in any of us. And may there not be compromise found in this congregation. May we be committed to you and may we be committed to this Pentecostal faith that was given to us. We didn't do anything to earn it. You gave it to us. May we treat it with care and honor it all the days that we live. May we pass it on to our children. And may for generations that come, even until you return again, may there always be that Pentecostal witness, I pray 
in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said amen and amen. One more time, give the Lord praise here in this house this morning. Amen. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and tell him that you love him in Jesus' name. You know, it was under the leadership of King Solomon that God took the nation of Israel by the hand and led them into an unprecedented season of peace, prosperity, and wealth that is commonly referred to as Israel's golden age. And golden it was. At the height of his influence, King Solomon was bringing into the kingdom of Israel 25 tons of gold annually. That would be equivalent to $1.2 billion today. And that's not even counting the revenues that would have been generated from the foreign trade routes that were established under his leadership. The time does not permit me this morning to speak of the expansion that Israel experienced during this time. The treaties that they entered into under Solomon's leadership, the wisdom that Solomon amassed to himself so great that from all over the world, kings and leaders would come to sit at his feet and hear it. Or even to take time to mention the construction that was accomplished under his leadership. The crowning jewel, of course, being Solomon's temple that alone would have cost over $200 billion to build today. And it was at this time that King Solomon commissioned the crafting of 500 gold shields. 200 of them were large, 300 of them were small. It is estimated that today it would cost about $33 million to make these 500 shields. You have to understand that these shields were made as a symbol of Israel's imposing wealth, imposing power, authority, influence in the world, and a symbol of God's presence upon the nation of Israel. And for many years, those shields hung in the palace, open for all to see and to experience. At any time, you could go in and you could look at these shields and you could reflect upon the faithfulness of God and the great favor that had been poured out upon the nation. Sadly, many of you know that that all changed rather rapidly. In fact, it was towards the end of Solomon's reign that the seams began to show. And ultimately, when he died, it unraveled rather quickly. Many of you know that after his death, the kingdom was actually tore apart and divided. To the north was the kingdom of Israel. Its capital city was Samaria, and it was led by a man named Jeroboam. To the south was the kingdom of Judah, its capital city remained Jerusalem, and it was led by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Sadly, it was under Rehoboam's leadership that the children of Israel, or children of Judah to be more accurate, uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked the anger and the wrath of God. In fact, it is said of them in 1 Kings 14 and verse number 24, they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So God removed the other nations from the land that was promised to Abraham because of their abominations and replaced them with the people of God. Sadly, the very people of God replicated the sins of the foreign nations. It's a sad day when the same sins you find in the world, you can find in the church. Just saying. (laughs) Tragically, you know that God allowed the king of Egypt, Shishak, to enter into Jerusalem in judgment. And from there, he removed from the temple of God all of the golden treasures of the Lord. And from the palace, he took the golden shield. Now, upon learning the fate of those shields, the actions of King Rehoboam are curious, to say the least. 
There is no record of there being any regret or remorse or sorrow in Rehoboam's heart. There is no record of shame in his heart. There is no record of Rehoboam crying out to the Lord. There is no record of Rehoboam being seized with great conviction that all of this had happened on his watch. There is no record that he called the nation to a day of prayer and repentance with sackcloth and ashes. There's not even a record that he arrogantly tried to devise a plan to go to Egypt and recover what was rightfully theirs. Instead, all that we are told is that he commissioned the creation of 500 brass or bronze shields in order to replace them. Brass, obviously, was a much cheaper material. And so he wanted to replace those gold shields with something that had an appearance of gold but was less costly, that cost really nothing at all. The idea here in Rehoboam's mind was, let's just keep up the appearance. Let's make everyone believe that the blessing of the Lord still remains upon us. Let's lead everyone to believe that God's favor is still upon Israel, even though we have lost the gold, and with that sense, the presence of God leaving as well, instead of conveying that message, let's let everyone believe that God is still with us. That God is still doing a work, that God is still cleansing, and that God is still adding, and God is still moving in Israel. What is interesting, however, is that rather than being hung in the palace where everyone could see them, where everyone could experience them and recognize the favor of God was still upon Israel, the Bible tells us that these shields had to be put in a heavily guarded room. That these shields were only brought out on special occasions, were kept at a distance from the onlookers, and when the event was over, they were taken right back to that room. They were locked and they were heavily guarded because Rehoboam could not afford anyone to get close enough to those shields to realize that they were fake, that they were a fraud. He had to keep the appearance that everything was all right, that everything was okay. He could not let anyone get close enough to them to see that it was all a fraud. It was all about appearance rather than performance. It was all about image. It was not about impact. As long as we look good, it really doesn't matter if we are good. As long as we can keep up the show, as long as we can keep the appearance, then everything will be all right. And they had to keep that hidden from the people of Israel. Now, some 900 years later, Jesus would stand before his disciples after his glorious resurrection from the dead, and he would command them, as written in Acts 1, beginning at verse 4, that they were not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Many of you know that not long after that, 120 disciples gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem and began to pray for the promise of the Father when, as it says in Acts 2 and verse 2, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or other languages as the Spirit of God gave them the utterance. And with that, the golden age of God's Spirit was born into the hearts of His disciples. At that moment, God brought the eternal gold of God's kingdom to the heart of man so that wherever we would go, we would carry the glorious kingdom of God in Jesus' mighty name. Now listen, 
It's interesting to note that during the ministry of Jesus Christ, it is recorded in Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1 that Jesus said to those who were gathered, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Contrary to what that may sound like, he was not suggesting that there would be some that would not die until they saw the visible, physical kingdom of God come to this earth. What he was saying is that there are some that are standing here with me right now that will not die until they see the kingdom of God come presently in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was actually talking about the Spirit of God being poured out. The Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost brought the kingdom of God to the hearts of man so that now we could go into the earth and fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God even as the waters cover the sea. And we would not do it in might nor power, but we would do it in the power of the Spirit of Almighty God in Jesus name and it is our responsibility today to maintain the gold of heaven in our heart and wherever we go to remind men and women that this world is not all there is that there is a kingdom of another world and that we must be prepared for it in Jesus mighty name can also tell you that since that day, every generation of believer has had to fight the good fight of faith in order to maintain absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God and to keep our passion for the Spirit of God alive in our hearts and our lives. Can I just tell you this morning something? Let me just clue you in on something that maybe you did not know. There is nothing more dangerous to the kingdom of darkness than disciples and churches that are filled with the Holy Spirit and power in Jesus' name. Can can I get a better amen out of that? There is no power in heaven or in hell that is greater than a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God Almighty. Can I tell you right now, as terrifying as ISIS may be, I'm going to tell you they are no match for the power of Almighty God in this hour, in Jesus' name. And it is for that very reason that the enemy has always looked for a way to deceive us so that we would move away from absolute dependency upon the Holy Spirit and that we would rely upon our flesh. The enemy knows that the only way that he can get us is to entice us to abandon the Holy Spirit and rely upon our own flesh and our own understanding. He knows that as long as we are led by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit, he cannot touch us. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us in Jesus' name. And so his tactic has always been to entice us to no longer depend upon the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, but rather to depend upon our own strength and our own ability and our own understanding. And that is why all throughout the New Testament there are warnings to not let that happen on our watch. You and I are simply recipients of something that God gave us. And while we live and breathe in our lifetime, it is our responsibility to make sure that the fires of Pentecost continue to burn in Jesus' mighty name. This is why Paul confronted the Christians living in the city of Corinth for fear that if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul's great concern was after his departure, and he was no longer influencing their ranks, that they would forsake the golden shields of Pentecost and would turn to a cheap substitute. That they would go after another Jesus, be filled with a different spirit, and accept another gospel, which was not the gospel of Jesus Christ at all. He shared a similar concern with Timothy concerning the church in the last days, saying in 1 Timothy 4 and verse number 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. 
couple of weeks ago now, I shared with you that I have long believed and taught that this last days falling away that Paul speaks of is not going to be millions of Christians just one day abandoning the faith. No, you and I know too much to do that. Rather, we will go to church and we will hear doctrines, but those doctrines being taught will be doctrines of demons. We will feel a spirit, but it will not be the Spirit of God. It will be a deceiving spirit that seduces us to believe the lie that is being propagated in the earth at that time. To the Christians living in Galatia, he says to them in chapter 1 and verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Later on, he would say in that same letter, Who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Are you so foolish? The Bible rarely uses the word fool to describe someone's intelligence. It is speaking of a rebellious individual. He says, are you so foolish? Are you so rebellious? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now seeking perfection by your flesh? To the church at Ephesus, Jesus said, I know that you're working and I know you're working hard. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Revelation 2 and verse 4. To the church at Sardis, he said in Revelation 3 and verse number 1, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. We are admonished by the Apostle Paul not to quench the Spirit, not to grieve the Spirit, not to forbid tongues. It is obvious as you walk through the New Testament letters that the apostles and even Jesus himself were very concerned that the further we got into this and the closer that we got to the coming of the Lord, that there would be a departure from what is true and there would be an embracing of that which is false. That we would abandon the gold shields, if you will, of Pentecost and that we would embrace brass shields which are nothing more than man-made philosophies. That we would play around with that which is false. That we would play around with that which is synthetic. That which is man-made. So there has always been a natural drift away from the Holy Spirit to actually put your trust and hope in the flesh. And you need to understand that. I don't know how many of you were here when we did the series back in the fall, Warning Signs. But we have always said that there is a current that is getting faster, that is moving further away from the presence of God. And we've got to understand that there is always a current in the church to no longer trust in the Spirit but to trust in our own understanding, in our own power, and in our own might. We are not immune to this in the 21st century. We are fighting this current even this morning. My concern as a fourth generation Pentecostal has always been that with the rise of technology, with the rise of things that distract us, with the rise of so many things that excite the senses, that appeal to the base nature of man, that fascinate the natural mind of man, that we as a church would no longer hunger and thirst for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, or that like Rehoboam, we might become content with an appearance of greatness, but having no performance, having no effectiveness at all. That we would just become ritualistic, we would come into church, that we would sense something here, but we would go out and live powerless lives. My prayer this morning is that all of us would receive this message as a cautionary tale That we would take a moment to remember the gold that was given to us on the day of Pentecost and that we would never trade it away for brass, but that we would always long for the greatness of Almighty God in our hearts and in our lives in Jesus' mighty name. So this morning I'd like to just take a few moments and quickly give to you four gold shields that were given to us on that day of Pentecost And that we dare not trade them away for a cheap imitation that weakens our lives, that weakens our churches, that weakens our effectiveness in the last day. 
that might look good but ultimately will prove useless in resisting the spirit of this age. The other day I was thinking about David as he was going out into battle with Goliath. Remember that story. And as he is preparing for battle, King Saul comes to him and says, you'll never make it with what you have. Here is my armor, put it on. And I love what David says, I cannot wear these things, for I have not proven them. I have not tested them. He knew that he could not go against a demonic force without that which was proven. And I'm going to tell you, when I consider the Goliaths that we are facing today, I dare not go into battle with things that are man-made, that have not been proven. I want to go in the armor of God. I want to be strong the Lord and in the power of his might in Jesus mighty name so first of all I want to talk to you about the gold shield of force and that the gold shield of force must never be traded for the brass shield of form we are a movement of force and power not of form and appearance Bible tells us, and I don't expect you to open up your Bible to these if you want to. It's in Acts chapter 2. I'm just drawing all of it from the record of that first day of Pentecost. It says, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. For those of you that may not be familiar with this story, what this is simply saying is that suddenly, supernaturally, these men and women began to speak the glories of God in another language that they had never learned. It was being given to them at that moment by the Holy Spirit. It was a supernatural empowerment. At verse number 12, it goes on to tell us, so they were all amazed and perplexed. This is the crowd that was hearing all of this. And they said to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are all full of new wine or they're drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and he said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day or nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. We need to recognize here this morning that the church was born in the force and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That the church was born in supernatural workings of God. Suddenness and things from heaven defined it. And if we are going to be the church that God has called us to be, then we must maintain a passion for the force and power of God to allow for God to suddenly move among us and literally wait to be defined by things from heaven where we receive no glory, but all the glory is given back to Almighty God in Jesus' name. What is sad is that it appears to me that We have no time for sudden visitations any longer. We schedule our services in such a way that we have all but eliminated an opportunity for the Spirit to suddenly interrupt and do what He wants to do. As I have often said, we come prepared, but we also come ready for God to divinely interrupt us at any moment because what God wants to do here is much more important than what I want to see accomplished here this morning. It seems like, and I've shared this with you uh, for some time now, but it seems like we're afraid that if we allow the Holy Spirit to move in our midst, that it might offend somebody and turn others off, and that they may leave in droves. We never stop to think that maybe those that were leaving really would be a hindrance to what God wanted to do in our midst. I, I'm not saying that we need to purposely offend people, but we certainly want to allow the Spirit of God to move the way He wants to. Today we have churches where they regulate the Holy Spirit. 
where they have, you know, a, a room set up or another campus that is set up for that. Because they're afraid that if he moves that they'd have to explain what was going on or that it may offend someone. You know, something that is often overlooked is that within minutes, not hours, not days, within minutes of the church being born, they were already offending many. Some were drawing criticism and even accusation saying that all the disciples and the 120 were drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. Since when did we not offend men and women? If we are going to be led by God, we've got to be ready to find men and women offended with us in Jesus' name. What I love about it is that Peter didn't get up and apologize that they heard all of these things. Instead, he stood up and said, we're not drunk. This is the Holy Spirit and you need him and your children need him and your grandchildren need him. And everyone that will ever call upon the name of the Lord needs the power of God. Because without him, you can do nothing. But with him, all things are possible in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, somebody give God the praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We need Him. But Paul saw the day coming when they would not desire force, but rather they would seek out form. In fact, Paul spoke of it directly in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 5. He says, know this. That in the last days, perilous, savage times will come. Folks, I'm going to tell you, we are living in savage, violent, perilous days right now. And if you don't believe that, then you missed what happened in London last night. We are living in dangerous times. And they're only going to become more dangerous as we draw closer to the coming of the Lord. But listen to what he believes is the greatest peril of them all. Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come because they'll have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Listen, and from such people turn away. That sounds harsh. But as far as Paul is concerned, there is nothing more perilous than a church or a Christian that has a form of godliness, but they actively deny the power of God within their own heart and within their own life. Nothing more dangerous. In fact, he says they are so dangerous that when you're around them, get away from them as quickly as you can. You know, I know some of you are probably saying, well, wait a minute, that sounds awful harsh. And you'd say, well, why is that? the case. Understand that we are dealing with eternal matters. And if we miss the mark of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, then men and women will be putting their trust in a message that may promise much, but delivers nothing when they stand before God Almighty one day. We cannot afford to mess with eternal matters. We cannot want brass. We must want gold and know it in Jesus' mighty and holy name. Paul said, like Rehoboam, the day is going to come when Christians are going to settle for form or an appearance of godliness, but the power of a transformed life will be denied. That they will be going through the motions, that they'll put on the show, but when you get right down to it, they have no power in their lives. Now listen, I want to talk to you. As, as your pastor right now. This is a, a prophetic message. I'm sure you've picked up on that. But now I just got to pastor you. Yesterday afternoon as I was just going over these notes and praying and just trying to be mindful of the Lord, this is what came to me. And this is for our church. I'm not going to share this. I don't believe in Burlington tonight. This is for us. You know, Rehoboam was the only one who knew, except for that inner circle, that those shields were actually brass. It's the only one. And he had to make sure that they were hidden so that no one could examine them and that no one could inspect them because he knew if they got close enough, they would find that it was brass and not gold. 
And he was willing to bring it out during special occasions because he knew in a special occasion that there would be a lot of people, that there would be a lot of activity going on. And so all that people would do is give a quick glance to make sure that the shields were there, but they weren't really paying attention to the shields. There was too much other activity going on. So he was willing to bring them out in special events and special occasions, but as soon as the event was over, he had to take them right back home, lock them in that room, and heavily guard them. Now listen, I love you. And I'm not saying that you're not saved. That is between you and the Lord. It is not my position to proclaim you saved or not saved. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I cannot tell you you are saved. I cannot tell you that you are not saved. That is between you and the Lord and the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? But there are some of you here today, you know, like Rehoboam, that it's all a sham for you. You know it's not real. You know that there is no power. You're going through the motions. And if I could get you in an honest moment, you would say, I don't feel anything. I know what my religious responsibilities are. I do them to the best of my ability, but there's no life. There's no power. When I pray... And I don't pray anywhere near the, the, the time that I should. When I pray, I feel nothing. When I read the Word of God, it does not bring me life. I read it and don't understand a thing that I'm reading. There is no joy in my walk with God. There is no life. There is no strength. And I don't know how many of you would be willing to admit it, but I believe with all of my heart there's many of you that are there. And you believe in God. It's not that you don't believe these things. It's just that there is no power. There is no life. There is no energy. There is no sense of joy within your walk with Christ. And you're willing to come out on Sunday morning. Because it's a special occasion. You know there's going to be a lot of people in church. And there's going to be a lot of activity. And so no one is really going to be able to examine or inspect your life. You're going to be able to blend in. And from a distance everyone is going to think that you are a life-giving child of the living God Almighty. But as soon as the service is over, you're going to quickly go home. You're going to lock your door. And you're going to live a guarded life. And that's why some of you will not commit to any discipleship growth. That is why you will not go to any small group of men and women. You'll say, well, I'm too busy or that's not really my cup of tea and I'm not really getting anything out of it. But the reality is you do not want to get too close to godly men and women because upon close inspection of your life, if they were to listen to you, if they were to watch you, they would find out that it's not gold, that it's all brass, that it's really not where you need to be. Can I tell you it's a pair thing to live your life in in an appearance and an image you need to get back to the real get around godly men and godly women and say I need power from on high in Jesus mighty name it's perilous to enjoy form and appearance over force and power this is not a duty It is the life that we live in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. It should bring you joy. When you open up the Word of God, it should bring you joy. When you pray, it should bring you joy. And if that's missing, you need Holy Spirit power in Jesus' name. Secondly, I want to talk to you about the gold shield of the prophetic. The gold shield of the prophetic and that it must never be traded for the brass shield of the pacific we were called to prophesy to this generation not to pacify it listen to what it says in acts 2 and verse 16 but this is what was spoken by the prophet joel and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters shall what? prophesy come on say it loud prophesy your young men shall see visions your old men shall dream dreams and on my men servants and on my maid servants i will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall what prophesy 
I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As I read that this week, my thought immediately was our Pentecostal faith has its roots in the prophetic. Now when I say the prophetic, I am not talking about that flaky fakery that you see on TV. I'm not talking about this mystical, woo, you know, kind of prophecy where there's gold dust and gold teeth and Goldberg. That's a wrestler. Uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, where there's gold, glory clouds. You know, I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the prophetic that was there in the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Where Peter immediately was able to discern what was happening. He was able to put it within a scriptural context and then speak intelligently to that moment and even tell them of the future and calling men and women unto salvation. He even went as far as to say that their own sons and their daughters would prophesy. Can I tell you that God has raised up the church in the last day to be the prophetic voice of God, to understand the times that we live in and not make a political statement, but rather speak on behalf of the kingdom of Almighty God. To put it into a biblical context and speak for the word of God and then call a generation to salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Did you ever really stop to think about the prophetic edge of the church? Even communion, which we're going to take next week, but even communion was prophetic. Remember what Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. It's prophetic. Even when we take communion, we are proclaiming the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we're also declaring that He is coming again in clouds of glory. We were always meant to be a prophetic voice in the earth. But today I fear that we have substituted the prophetic gold for a message that pacifies the generation. Today it grieves my heart that many men and even women of God no longer want to be prophets, they want to be life coaches. They want to be motivational and inspirational speakers. That they want to stand before their congregations and have a talk. Let's, let's just discuss things. Now don't misunderstand me. In no way, shape, or form am I saying there's anything wrong with that. Certainly there is a place for those things. But can I just reminisce with you for a moment when God called me at 16 years old. He didn't call me to be a life coach. He didn't call me to be a motivational or inspirational speaker. He didn't call me to dialogue with you. He called me to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exalt with all long suffering and doctrine and it grieves the heart of God that we no longer have that prophetic message that speaks to what is happening and that we have now settled for inspiration no folks we've got to come back to the prophetic word and speak what needs to be said in this hour in Jesus mighty name you know I over the weekend I thought of Moses up in the mountain waiting upon God for a word for Israel. And from that would obviously come the Ten Commandments. But he's waiting and he's waiting. And while he's waiting, the people down in the valley, they are becoming restless and impatient because they want something now. And finally they turn to Pastor Aaron. And they say, Aaron, we don't even know what happened to Moses. What are you going to do for us? And Aaron says, give me all of your gold. And he took their gold earrings, their necklaces, their chains. He melted them down and he made for them a golden calf. And he said, this is the God that has delivered you from Egypt. And they went after that God instead of the real God. I'm afraid that we've done the same things.
That as Aaron of old, we have gone to this generation and said, okay, what kind of God are you wanting to serve? What kind of gospel do you want to hear? What kind of church do you want to go to? What will offend you? What will not offend you? What will make you comfortable? What will make you uncomfortable? And then we went into our computer rooms and we designed a gospel and a message that they are comfortable with that satisfies their desires. Folks, that is exactly what Paul said would happen in the last days when men and women would no longer endure sound doctrine but after their own lusts they begin to heap to themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear folks we're not called to pacify this generation or any other generation we're not called to keep conceding to them but we were called to stand up and say thus saith the Lord call them to Christ and then in compassion come alongside them and help them grow in their faith but we cannot exchange prophetic gold for pacifying this generation in Jesus name I'm going to tell you folks my heart grieved when I saw all of those events coming out of London but what grieves me more than that is that today men and women even in the church will get more information from CNN we should be on the cutting edge we should be the ones that are saying this is what God is doing in the earth this is what he's saying come back to Christ come back to Jesus there is a God in heaven who still reveals secrets even as he did to Daniel in the days of Nebuchadnezzar we need to be the prophetic voice again in Jesus mighty name can somebody give God the praise Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Very quickly, number three, I want to talk about the gold shield of repentance. The gold shield of repentance must never be traded for the brass shield of regret. The Bible says that as they hear these words, listen to this in verse 37, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. It's important. The Bible says that they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't know that I've ever thought about this before, but this weekend as I was just studying over these things, it occurred to me that the very first altar call in the church The first altar call was not initiated by the pastor. It was initiated by the lost. Peter didn't say, I'm going to tell you what to do to get right with God. They cried out and said, what must we do to get right with God? You know that the Lord is moving when they're crying out, what must we do to be right with God? Where do I begin here? The gold shield of repentance has all been but removed from the church today and it has been replaced with the brass shield of regret and remorse. We no longer understand what true repentance is. We have substituted it for just remorse, feeling bad, regret. And some people will say, well, Pastor Kurt, that's just a matter of semantics. No, I'm sorry, it's not. It's much more than that. Even the Apostle Paul was fully aware in 2 Corinthians that there was a sorrow that leads to death and a sorrow that leads to life. That there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and there is a worldly sorrow that obviously just leads to death and the continuation of sin. The key is this. That the Bible says when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Over the last couple of weeks, I've shared with you that the heart is the will. When we talk about the heart, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it is dealing with the will. So when it says that they were cut to the heart, it means that the word of God cut their will. It broke their will. And for the very first time, those men and women recognized that God was fully and completely right, and they were fully and completely wrong. 
For the very first time, they saw what their sins had not done to them, had not done to others, but what their sin had done to God and His creation. For the very first time, they manifested a desire to no longer want to be in sin, but to live for the glory of God. For the very first time, they saw how selfish, how self-centered their lives were, and they wanted to surrender them to the living God Almighty. And that is why the success rate in those days was so much greater than what it is today because there was genuine repentance within their heart. Today, we have regret. Today, people come to our churches feeling sorry that they got caught. They still love the sin. They just got sorry that they were careless and that they got caught in it. They, get, they feel sorry and they regret doing what they did because of what they will lose. Because they tend to lose their marriage, their husband, their wife, their family, their sons, their daughters, their job, their reputation. And the sorrow that they feel is all selfish. What am I going to lose out of this? What am I going to uh, experience as a result of being caught in my sin? It's all selfish. It's all self-centered. And then we wonder why men and women keep falling back into that same sin over and over and over again. I'll tell you why. It's because they never really wanted to be through with it in the first place. In fact, they'd still do it today if they didn't think they'd get caught. Ooh. i got to preach this to another church, remember. Pray for me. <laughs> but this is what is happening today. Repentance literally means that I do an about face, that I turn my back on my sin, and forever I live for the glory and for the honor of Almighty God, that I am repulsed that I ever did it, that I ever thought it, that I ever lived it. I want to live for the glory and for the honor of Almighty God. What has happened is that it is a byproduct of pacifying this generation with a feel-good message that is all about them. We stand up and say, oh, look at all the great things that God has for you. Look at all the wonderful things that God has for you. Instead of that prophetic message that says, wait a minute, you were created for the pleasure of Almighty God. And if you want to be forgiven of your sin, the wicked man must forsake his way. He must forsake his thoughts. And God will abundantly pardon. We are not for ourselves. We live for the glory of Almighty God alone. In Jesus' name. And then finally, I want to talk to you about the gold shield of salvation. And that the gold shield of salvation must never be traded for the brass shield of religion. Acts 2 and verse 40. We finish out with these words. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Wow. Be saved from this perverse generation. You know, I am thankful for forgiveness. And you know, many of you know where I'm going with this. I thank God for forgiveness. But what I really need is not just forgiveness for my sin. I need salvation from my sin. I need deliverance from the shackles of my sin. It is not a matter of just being forgiven. I need to be saved. The very first thing that was said of Jesus was that He will save His people. He will deliver them from their sin. The great error of this day is that we're telling people that Jesus came to forgive us of our sin. He came to forgive righteously, but He came to free us from sin, to save us from sin, that it would no longer have dominion over us. We don't have that. And it only stands to reason because if you have faulty repentance, you're only going to have faulty salvation. If repentance is the first step that I take in being saved, if I'm off there, then my salvation is going to be off as well. It's amazing as I, I listen today to many different voices that are out there. Some fear that the greatest threat to salvation is salvation by works. That we're saved by our works. You hear it all the time now. Everyone is saying we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. And who is denying that? No one. 
but they see that as the greatest threat. I'm going to tell you that perhaps the the greatest threat and the growing threat to salvation is turning the grace of God into a license to sin. Jesus' brother Jude in his only letter said they turned the grace of God into lewdness. Which is to say that they have turned the grace of God into a license to sin. And the way grace is being abused today, that is what they're saying is, you don't have to worry about how you live. You don't have to worry about what you look at. You don't have to worry about what you listen to. You know, you're saved by grace, not by your works. Grace was meant to literally restrain my heart to live for the glory and for the honor of God, not to give me permission to live my life the way I want to. That's the greatest threat. And if I haven't been clear on this matter before, let me be clear on it today. Saved people do stumble. Okay? I don't know whether to amen that or not. I mean, (laughs) I don't want to stumble, but saved people stumble. I don't believe in sinless perfection. I don't believe that when you're saved that you'll never sin again. We stumble, we fall. But can I also tell you that saved people grow up. Which is to say that if I am committed to growing in my faith, sin should become the exception to my life, not the rule. And we've gone over this for the last couple of weeks. If I have truly been born again by the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of God or the nature of God now abides in me and I am a new creation and the very instincts of God become my instincts for the glory of His name. It means that when our children are born, we don't have to coax them to try and keep progressing. It's instinctive in them to make progress. We're just there to make sure they stay out of things that are going to hurt them and harm them. But that instinct, that drive is still there. And for a child of God who's been born of the Spirit, they don't need to be coaxed to live for God. It's already in them to go after God in Jesus' name. Listen, this is a simple illustration, but when you and I were still lost, nobody had to call us up to remind us to go to the bars. Nobody had to call us up and remind us to swear. Nobody had to call up and say, hey, don't forget to uh, blaspheme God today. We did it. Nobody had to call us up and remind us that we had to sin against God Almighty. Why? Because it was in our nature. We were sinners, and we were sinning against Almighty God. I'm going to tell you, friends, when you're born of the Spirit of God. No one has to tell you to come to church. No one has to tell you to read the Bible. No one has to tell you to grow up in the things of God because God is already living inside of you. And that instinct is there to move forward in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, somebody, give God the praise for that in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Salvation. I'm delivered from sin. I may still have to grow. I still have to be discipled. But no one has to tell me to do that. It's there. The desire's there. You know, we have a dog. Some of you know, we have a little dog. And it's so funny because she's very much a house dog. She, she goes outside, but she much prefer being in the house. The other day, Kathy, I was writing down these notes. And Kathy had given her one of her little bones. And she went right over to her bed. And she started pawing at her bed. And then she put it in this little nest that she had made. And then spent the next few minutes trying to nose the sheets of her bed over the bone. She was burying her bone in her bed. Why? I mean, like, Allie, this is not dirt, but she's just doing what comes natural. It's in the nature of a dog to do those things. And I'm going to tell you, it is in the nature of a man or a woman who is born of the Spirit to go after the things of God, to recover the things of God in their life, because God is now alive in them in Jesus' mighty name. The reason that we have to stay with people and keep on them is because now we have religion, not salvation. We have a lot of religious people who have come to altars 
and they've prayed a prayer that they were told to pray, but there was no repentance. There was no desire to leave the old life behind and to be hungry for the things of God. There was no desire like that. It was just all about them. And now they are just religious. They go to church, but there's no life. There's no passion. There's no fire. They find it a struggle to live for God, a struggle to have a conversation about the things of God because they're religious. They're not saved. Folks, we have got to restore the gold shield of salvation again because we're not playing games with eternity. When you draw your last breath, that is it. You don't come back and do it over again. You've got to know when you check out, I'm saved by the power of Almighty God in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask the band to come. Folks, these are the gold shields, and we have to keep those gold shields at any cost, and there is only one way, and that is to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, what's interesting is that two chapters after the initial outpouring, two chapters, Acts chapter 4 now, just two chapters, the apostles gathered the church together and said, we're about to go into persecution and we need fresh fire again. And they got together and they prayed and you read about it in Acts 4 and verse number 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. For all of you who believe, you get all of the Holy Spirit you need at salvation, what do you do with this verse? We're just two chapters later, they're praying for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit and they're refilled. You know what I love about this? Is that they prayed for the very things that got them arrested in the first place. They prayed for more boldness and they prayed for greater signs and wonders to be done. Because they said it's not about form and appearance, it is about the impact that we're having. And we don't care if we die for it. We will maintain the gold of Pentecost and never trade it in for brass. Folks, can we pray? Can we commit ourselves as a fellowship to pray for fresh fire? I told you four or five weeks ago that I have never been more hungry for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit than I am right now. How many of you are hungry for that as well? That you will commit yourself to prayer for that. If that's your heart, would you stand with me this morning here with your hands stretched up to the Lord? And would you just right there, would you just begin to pray? Lift up your voice. Don't pray silently. You know, the Bible says that those masses heard them praying. Would you pray right now for God to just fill you anew and afresh with His Holy Spirit? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Some of you, for the first time, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit as you're praising Him. If the Holy Spirit comes upon you, don't be afraid to, to speak in those other languages as the Spirit of God gives them the utterance. But let's just pray. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' mighty name, Holy Spirit, come. Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Move among us in your own special way. Hallelujah. We magnify the name of the Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. The Lord would say to His people today, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I see all that is happening. I see what is going on. 
But have I not sent to you the Comforter, my Holy Spirit to abide within you, to comfort you, to give you peace in this hour? Do not resist me. Do not put me away. But open up your heart to me. Let me fill you with my Holy Spirit so that you may enjoy intimacy with me. So that in me you may find the strength to live the life that I have called you to live. Do not you know that I know you cannot do this without me. And do you know that I sent my son to cleanse your temple so that I could send you my Holy Spirit to abide with you to the end of the age. Do not rely in your own strength. Do not rely in your own ability, says the Lord. But today lean upon me and I will give you the strength to face all that is coming. For the times are becoming even more evil. But grace does much more abound. You will overcome if you stay with me, says the Lord in Jesus' name. Hallelujah and hallelujah. Give him praise in this house. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. God has so much more for us. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, God has so much more for us. Bless God. Amen. He wants to do great things. Don't settle for anything less than God's best for your life. In Jesus' name, yes, give the Lord praise. Amen, amen. Bless God. Amen. Father, go with us today. And I pray that we be mindful of these things throughout the rest of this day. Lord, tonight I pray that you would pour out your spirit in Fountain of Life. I pray that as we gather with other churches, the Holy Spirit would come. Uh, Lord, I'm not even talking about the message. If you don't even want me to preach, that's fine. I just want the Holy Spirit to come forth. Lord, may we hunger and thirst always for more of you. We ask it all in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said amen and amen. God bless you, everyone. Enjoy.